good morning. It's good to be back again. Um, before we open up God's word, let's once again just pray and ask for God's help. Our God and our Father, we are again thankful to be here in your house. We're thankful that this is your day, this is your hour, and this is your word. And we come to you, Lord, and we humbly ask two things. Speak, Lord, for your servants here. And Father, we would see Jesus. Grant us help that we pray in his precious name. Amen. So we're looking at two gospel essentials today. At this earlier hour, we looked at repentance. And um, this hour, we'll look at uh, belief or faith. And uh, we are in an age where two things happen. Uh, and that is that some people will believe absolutely everything that is presented to them without any good reason at all. And others will believe absolutely nothing despite mountains of evidence. Both are completely ungrounded and they lack clarity, conviction, confidence. They're unprofitable, right? But God has not left us in either position. God has given to us his inerrant and sufficient scriptures to guide us and his spirit to aid us. We do not need to grope about in the dark. So we are looking at today these two Gospel essentials are vital, key, critical, important issues. And I read this in the earlier hour, but I'll read it again. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So these two uh, gospel essentials, Faith and repentance are like a husband and a wife in a biblical marriage. They should not be separated. They are vitally and essentially woven together in God's glorious plan of redemption. But notwithstanding this, we'll look just at this aspect of belief. So our text this afternoon, or this part of the service, is from John chapter 8, verses 21 to 30. And I ask you to turn there in your Bibles. I'll read the text. John 8, beginning in verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed upon him. So we're going to take up this text under the following headings, Context, 
although briefer than the earlier context. Sobering declaration, the grounds for the sobering declaration, and then a glimmer of hope and practical uses. So again, the context. John 8.21, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So in this context, Jesus is telling them something very important. He's telling them that he's leaving. He's going away. He's no longer going to be there. But he also tells them that they will seek him, but he declares to them that they will seek him, but not with all their hearts. And he tells them they will die in their sins. They will be barred from his presence. That's kind of the backdrop of his words. So we're going to go there directly now to the sobering declaration. So we'll read this again, 8, 21 to 30. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. You see, this is a seeking of God that is a very insincere seeking of God. They were going to seek him, but they were going to die in their sins. That is, they were not going to find him. And again, this gets repeated, of course, in this passage. He said to them in verse 23, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And there is a principle in Scripture that if the Spirit records things multiple times, there's an emphasis on it, there's an importance on it that we dare not miss that even here. But they were seeking God, but there was no sincerity. J.C. Ryle says concerning this, they were seeking God, but not with their whole heart. He says there are two aspects of not seeking God with the whole heart. One, by seeking him in vanity, and the other is by uh, resisting light and knowledge. And both are likely in view here. You see, because they're seeking him, but they, they, they were told, they will not find him. All right? So, Ryle says this, The lesson before us is a very painful one, that such a Savior as the Lord Jesus, so full of love, so willing to save, should ever be sought in vain is a sorrowful thought. Yet so it is. A man may have many religious feelings about Christ without any saving religion. Sorry about that. Sickness, sudden affliction, the fear of death, the failure of usual sources of comfort, all these causes may draw out a man and a good deal of religiousness. Under the immediate pressure of these, he may say his prayers fervently, exhibit a strong spiritual feeling, and profess for a season to seek Christ, and and be a different man. And yet all this time his heart may never be touched at all. Take away the peculiar circumstances that affect him, and he may possibly return at once to his old ways. He sought Christ in vain because he sought him from false motives and not with his own whole heart. Unhappily, this is not all. There is such a thing as a settled habit of resisting light and knowledge until we seek Christ in vain. Scripture and experience alike prove that men men may reject God until God rejects them and will not hear their prayer. This is uh, a long quote, I know, but it's an important quote because I suspect many of us here have had the experience of witnessing to a friend or a loved one who was very sick or had some traumatic event in 
their life. And they seem sensitive to the things of God. They seem to respond. I myself have a brother who's had a couple of quote-unquote near-death experiences where he's called for me to come and pray for him. And when he's healed up, he turns beet red in the face and leave me alone, get away from me with this stuff. He wants nothing to do with Christ. But for that season, there's a vain seeking of God. That's a very sad thing. So in our text this morning, this is what we have. Jesus is telling them, I am going away. You will seek me and will die in your sin. That is a very clear indication to us that their seeking of him is not of sincerity. It's of hypocrisy, perhaps. It's of vanity. And uh, there's clearly, as we're going to see later, as we read through some of the background of these texts, very clear rebelling against light and knowledge that they had and rejecting it willfully. But so we have this context going on. When Jesus has said to them that you will seek me and you will die in your sins, how do we know that they're going to die in their sins? Well, how do we know it's a vanity? We could look, for instance, at Deuteronomy 4, 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. You see, this is a clear promise of God. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. These, Jesus says, you'll seek me and you will not find me. What is the conclusion? It's not an all your heart seeking. It's not a sincere, earnest seeking after God. They are not um, coming to him honestly. But then they also, they ask this amazing question. I, I find the question amazing. They're standing in the presence of the Son of God. And they ask him, who are you? Who are you? Now, if they were strangers who were totally unfamiliar with the Lord Jesus, had never been around him, that might be a legitimate question. But Jesus takes that away. They said to him, who are you? In verse 25, and Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. You see, Jesus is saying to them in a sense, how can you ask who I am? I've been telling you who I am ever since I came onto the scene. I've been demonstrating who I am ever since I've been on the scene. You've seen the works. You've heard the preaching. Other men have said, no man speaks like this, but you want to know who I am. It's not an honest question. Well, we'll continue on. Secondly, he says, in your sins. They will die in their sins, right? So first they're not going to find Jesus, but then Jesus says they're going to die in their sins in verse 21. But I think we have to understand this. He's not talking at this point yet about a future state. You see, if they're going to die in their sins, they're already in their sins. They're already guilty before God. This is their current state, not their future state. This is their actual, real, current, and continual condition before God. They are in their sins. In fact, the Bible describes all unrepentant sinners who are not reconciled to God through the blood of Christ as being dead in their sins or dead in their trespasses and sins. It's a current state. If you're not a believer and you don't know this, and maybe it's a revelation to you, you are dead in your sins. That's Every Christian was dead in their sins, Every non-Christian is dead in their sins. They have Their behavior is consistent with their fallen and corrupted nature. They're enemies of God and slaves of unrighteousness, children of wrath, and, and they belong to the 
kingdom of darkness. Right? This is just their condition. They're guilty, condemned, and without God and without hope in the world. This is why Jesus says to them, you will die in your sin. And I want to say for a moment that being in your sin, it's not a badge of honor. I was thinking about this a bit. When the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's not something that we can hide behind as a badge. And it happens all the time. We talk to people and they say, well, I know I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And somehow they think that's a good thing. They think, hey, we've all got a big rock to hide behind, and it's our common sinfulness before God. But when God in his word says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that is a word of condemnation. There's no comfort in it. There's no sense in which that's a good thing. Now, we need to think about this, whether for ourselves or we're talking to other people. Yes, you are in your sins, but don't take any pride in that. Don't hide behind it. So, it, you know, sin is grotesque in God's sight. Sin is that which causes God to be angry every day. Sin is that which causes people to be cast into hell. It's the reason why Christ had to die on the cross. Sin is not a good thing. Being in your sin is not something to be complacent about. Now, there was no shame or conscience over their sin. They were content to wallow in the mire of their sin, being guilty, defiled, and polluted. But they did not strain against it and seek to escape. So God is angry with the wicked every day. So that's the second aspect of this. But the third is a, the, the darker aspect. So Jesus says that you, you are in your sin. You're going to seek me and not find me. You're in your sin. But then he says you will die. Right? He said you will die. Again, this is a future state. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 28. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And now I don't want to look so much here about the issue of apostasy, which is clearly in view, but this certain expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the enemies. Again, if you're going to die in your sins, this is what it will lead to. This is not temporal death. Again, some of this is uh, familiar from this morning, but it's necessary here as well. Not temporal. This is not what is spoken of in Ecclesiastes 3, right? Those very familiar words that even show up in folk hymns or folk songs. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 3. To everything there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. So in Ecclesiastes, we have here before us kind of the cycle of life, the things that happen in life, and natural death is in view here. But that's not what Jesus is talking about, just for context. Dying in your sins is to suffer the second death, the eternal death, the permanent state, not temporary or fleeting. It's a hopeless condition. It's an unbearable condition. Sin has separated from God. Jesus says, where I go, you cannot come. Why can't they go where Jesus is going? Jesus tells them, you are from beneath. I am from above. In other words, you're of this world of this world system, this world philosophy, this world morality. I'm from heaven. 
I'm from God. I'm from where righteousness dwells. Sin and righteousness cannot dwell together. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He's saying, you can't come with me because nothing that defiles will enter into heaven. And so there's this real clear thing. Sin has separated them from God. That's the point he's making to them. Well, what is the grounds then for this sobering declaration? The grounds for it is sin, right? Your sin. We must not overlook this significant point. Men are judged because of their sin. Sometimes people want to say, well, I'm judged because I'm not one of the elect. No, that's not your business. You know, I, I'm, you know, God made me this way. It's his fault I'm sinning. That's not true. God made man upright. Man sought out many devices. Men are judged because of their sin, not because of some failure in God. It is true that all men deserve to be judged. All men deserve to go to hell. All men fall short of God's glory. But God has set his love on some. But nevertheless, the reason and the grounds for Jesus' declaration is their sin. Men are condemned because of their sin and not for any other reason. When God condemns men, when God judges men, when hell receives her latest uh, volunteers, as it were, it's a righteous thing with God. Men are condemned because they have willfully and gleefully sinned against the holy God. And we need to remember it's, it's about God's holiness. We must settle it in our hearts and our minds. Hell is real. Judgment is certain. And sin is all that is needed for our holy, loving, just, and righteous God to eternally punish sinners in hell. It's all that's needed is, is, is sin. And I, I, we need to, I know I mentioned this, but do we believe in our hearts that hell is real? If we don't believe hell is real, then we don't believe God. We're calling him a liar because hell is everywhere found in the scriptures. And the Lord Jesus himself, the Prince of Peace, spoke more of it than anyone else. Hell is real, and the people you love and care about, if they do not turn to Christ, they will inhabit hell for all of eternity. They will hear the cries of torment, and they will see unspeakable horrors that we don't want them to see. We, we need to believe this, and we need to preach it to them. Sin is not only part of the verdict, it's also part of the, it's part, not only part of the cause, but part of the verdict. I mean, if we die in our sins, we're going to continue in our sins. There's a sense that, that God does in this life abandon sinners to their sin. We read Romans 1, we don't have time to do it. But there is a time when as sinners rebel against God, and they persist in God, that God says to them, fine, you want your sin? You want your freedom? You want me to take my hand off? And he steps back in judicial abandonment and allows sinners to go headlong into sin. They're not free. They're not free, any more free than the person who wants to be out of the airplane without a, without a parachute. They can jump. They're not free. The ending's not good. Right? So they're not free. Then there's also the aspect of this. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. Jesus states it this way, verse 23. You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. We can say it this way. If sinners who do not repent of their sins and do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ were ever led into heaven, for them it would be a type of hell. Because the God that they want nothing to do with 
is what heaven is all about. The presence of God and his glory is all that heaven is about. And when they get there, they're not going to find more sin and more wild parties. They're going to find God whose existence they cannot stand with him. All right? Jesus also said this regarding me. You do not believe that I am he. This is this part of this declaration. It's a specific issue that he's talking about. They don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. The meaning of unbelief here, true belief is very much more than an intellectual comprehension of the facts. But belief includes and therefore includes the following things. And therefore, unbelief is the opposite, right? True belief is a heart conviction. It's not mental. It's here. Right? If you get it, if you have the things of God in your head, they need to get to your heart. You need to believe them. There's heart conviction. There's complete trust in the, in the one that you believe in, right? You say, I believe in the Lord Jesus, but I'm going to keep working to make sure that I'm acceptable to God. No, it's not Jesus plus anything. That's not belief. It's a full agreement with God and with his ways. And there's a longing expectation. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or assurance of things not seen. So there's that trusting in God, that longingness, that looking forward. But Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we have here in this sense, Jesus says, you don't believe that I am he. In Hebrews we're told we must believe that God is, right? And that God is the one that rewards those who diligently seek him. And these here that he's speaking to have not diligently sought him. He's told them, you're going to seek me, but you're not going to be with me. So we want to look at that aspect, right? But we'll look now at the nature of unbelief. Unbelief is destruction. It's our destruction if we're unbelieving. Unbelief is the most is most unreasonable. Why is unbelief unreasonable? God has provided the witness of the scriptures, including the eyewitnesses that were read earlier in the service, the witness of creation itself. We can look all around us, and the scriptures tell us there's a God in the heavens. Right, We have that witness of the scripture. We have the, the witness of those whose lives have been changed. And anyone who's had their life changed by the gospel, that is a miraculous event wrought by the living God, that which could not be done by man, only by God. And that witness speaks to us every time we see someone, especially if they were a notorious sinner, walking in holiness, praising and serving our God. So it's unreasonable to be unbelieving, right? We have all these witnesses. We have the word of God written on our hearts. We have consciences that tell us when we're wrong. We know there's a God. We understand that we ought to believe. So unbelief is self-destructive. And it does the most damage to yourself. There's all kinds of things we can do in life, right? And some sins harm others more than ourselves. But unbelief, it's on us, right? If we, if we do not believe, we suffer the consequences initially. But it's also very hurtful and dangerous to those that are around us that we claim to love. Why? Because if we don't believe God, if we don't believe in Christ, if we don't turn from our sins, we'll continue in patterns of sin 
that would include not loving our, our neighbor, our family, etc., but more importantly, setting before them an example of disobedience and rebellion, which if they follow, they will follow us into hell. So unbelief is very dangerous to ourselves and to our family. It's the worst and most damning of all sins, barring the unpardonable sin. Um, it's a sin that must be repented of. It is the Unbelief is the greatest monster that lives in the hearts of men, which emboldens them to many other horrors and evils. If you're not aware of it, if you're an unbeliever, in your heart is a monster that if it breaks out in its full colors will do very much damage. Unbelief is itself evil according to the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 says this, and again, speaking to Christians, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You see, unbelief is evil according to God. It's an evil heart of unbelief depart in departing from the living God. And then the, uh, the positive side here says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today. In other words, keep encouraging your brethren. Keep encouraging your family. Keep encouraging your children, those around you. In, as long as it's called today, what are you encouraging them to and exhorting them to? To faith and obedience, right? Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If we don't turn from our sin, if we don't turn to God, if we're unbelieving, sin will get worse and worse and we will become totally deceived by sin. It's a dangerous thing. Well, I want to come to what is not believed. So we've said they're guilty of unbelief. But this is where we'll spend a little bit more time. What did these people that Jesus is speaking to, what was it they did not believe? Well, they did not believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And they did not believe in the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus. So they did not believe that he was God incarnate, and they did not believe that he was the promised one. They're not like Simeon of old, who when he holds the baby Jesus, says, Lord, now your servant can depart in peace for you. My eyes have seen the salvation of Israel, right? He got it, but they don't get it here. So their own sinnerhood, they don't even believe their own sinnerhood before God. That is to say, they did not believe that they, had, that they were sinners alienated from God. They didn't think they were that bad. They did not believe that they needed anything more than their ethnic heritage to be saved. I think that's true of the Jews that he's speaking to here. They did not believe what the scriptures plainly taught concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And I want to read a number of scriptures here because this is important. Remember, earlier they've said, who are you? And he said, I've been telling you who I am, just what I've said from the beginning. Now let's look at what the scripture says about who this Jesus is that they're standing before. Uh, and I'll try not to linger too long on these, but uh, John 3, 27 and 28. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. That is, all these Jews had been part of the throngs and crowds going down to be baptized by John. And John's telling them, I'm not the Christ. I'm going to testify of the one who is. We could look also here at... Uh, John, 30, John 3, verses 30 to 36. He must increase, but I must decrease, John the Baptist speaking. 
He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent uh, speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see the kind of things that they had heard, and that they knew about the Lord Jesus, that he was from above, that all things had been given into him, that he speaks the words of God, and that believing on him brings everlasting life. They had heard all of these things, they weren't believing it. John 4, verses 25 and 26, that Jesus is the Messiah, Christ, right? The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. This is the woman at the well, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Straight, plain, responsive declaration from the Lord Jesus. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Did Jesus hide under a bushel that he was the Messiah? He didn't. It was an open known fact. He proclaimed it. And the people he spoke it to who were witnesses, they spoke it to other people. The word about him had gone out to all the regions. John 4, 29 to 30, 39 to 42. Again, this is the woman. Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out to the city and came to meet him. So this woman, who was a notorious sinner, goes and tells her friends, I just met a man who told me my life history, laid it bare before me. Is this the Christ? Right? They, and they all go and find out. In verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his own word. You see, Jesus was speaking words that men, when they hear, will believe if they trust in God, right? Verse 42, then they they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said. See, she had a witness to them. For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Imagine that. These Samaritans know that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and the Jews studying their scriptures say to him, Who are you? They have their head in the sand, willfully rejecting him. John 5, verses 16 to 18. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus. Why did they want to persecute him? Why did they seek to kill him? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You see, Jesus performed works of mercy on the Sabbath, perfectly acceptable and right to do, and they, being legalistic and unbelieving, wanted to kill him for doing good things on the Sabbath day. And then he says that, My father's been working. I've been working. They know what he's saying. He's saying to them that I and the Father are one. They know that he's made a claim to be God himself. That's why they want to kill him. And now when they say to him, who are you? It's utter hypocrisy. Utter hypocrisy. 
John 5, 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Jesus has held himself out as the Savior, as a merciful and gracious Redeemer who will redeem those who come to him, and they will still reject asking, Who are you? John 5, 45 and 47, Do not think I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. You see, they trusted in the Scriptures, right? For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, the Lord Jesus in his ministry has come to the Jews and said, look, you make a big deal about the scriptures, but you don't believe them, you don't trust them, you don't obey them, and you reject me, the one who came in fulfillment of them. John 6.29, the goal of greatest spiritual pursuit. Jesus answered and said to them, because he'd had the question asked, what shall we do that we shall work the works of God? This is the work of God. You want to know what God wants you to do? Anyone want to know what God wants them to do? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's it. You want to work the works of God? You don't have to invent it. Jesus himself told us. And the Jews rejected that. In John 6, 35-40. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given to me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, these are the things Jesus has been saying. Jesus has been saying, if you come to me, you're not being cast out. So if you come to Jesus and you're cast out, it's because you didn't come to him with your heart. You didn't come to him in sincerity. But he says, nevertheless, come to me and you will not be cast out. If you come to me, I will give you everlasting life. I will raise you up at the last day. You'll have eternal life. That's an incredible promise. John 6, 46 and 47. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall walk, not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see the point? Text after text after text, interaction after interaction after interaction, the Jews and all who were alive in that day that came into the sphere where Jesus was had gracious words, loving words, merciful words offered out to them. Though Jesus warned about sin and warned about judgment and warned about hell, he was not desiring that any should go. He was calling men to himself. Come to me and believe on me and live. That's what he's been saying. So when they say, who are you? They already know. They are just rejecting. And I wonder here how many, if there are any, hear that 
perhaps know all about Jesus and know the reality of the things that have just been shared, and yet you have not yet come to Jesus. Friend, do not persist in such folly. Well, again, like this morning, the text has a glimmer of hope. Going back to our text, And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if, here's our, it's two words this time, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, Jesus, after this warning, is still holding out the condition that you do not have to die in your sins. It's inferred, but there's hope here of not ultimately being condemned. But, you know, it would be just if they were condemned, but there's hope that it not, might not be the case. Again, it's an issue of Jesus speaking words that are filled with love and grace. All right? What if you do believe? Right? What if you do believe? Does not the Savior throw out the lifeline, even as we saw this morning? He extends his hands. Think about Peter, right? You all know the story about Peter in the boat. And he jumps out of the boat when he sees Jesus. You know, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you. Come to me, Peter. Peter jumps in, walks in the water, takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to drown, right? And Jesus doesn't, just doesn't say, well, you know, you should have listened to me, Peter. He reaches out his hand and takes hold of Peter, lifts him up. That's the sense here now. The Lord Jesus has got his hands outstretched. He's bidding men and women, boys and girls, to come and to believe upon him. There's logic here. Well, surely the meaning must be an appeal even to the Jews to consider their foolhardy rejection of the promised Messiah. There is no other Messiah coming. There is no other Savior of mankind. There is not another one that we look for. You know, the disciples of John at one point had gone to him and said, John says, are you the one or do we seek another, right? There is not another. Surely Jesus is bidding them to cast their burdens upon him because he cares for them. Now Matthew Henry says that Jesus here spoke words of terror as well as words of grace, right? Imagine, words of terror and words of grace mingled together. 1 John 5.1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him, who is begotten of him. And in John 11, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, so we know the story. Lazarus was dead. Martha was grieving. And Jesus is trying to comfort her. And she says, Yeah, I know that he's going to rise in the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, you want to have eternal life? You want to live after the grave? You have to go to Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. What a glorious declaration that is, right? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the resurrection and the life. He is God's great gift to the world. While this isn't a Christmas message, the gospel from the cradle to the cross is all is what the Christmas message is all about. It's all one story. 
one plan of redemption. Jesus Christ is the center of it. And Jesus Christ is still bidding sinners to be saved. The benefits of believing, well, this is just briefly. If we believe we have a new name in heaven, our names in this life may be, may be tarnished, but we'll get a new name in heaven. Think about it now. Even Rahab the harlot still has that tarnished name in this life. In heaven, that moniker, if you will, will be changed. We have new names before God. Our names that are written in the Lamb's book of life. We'll have new natures. Though, not, though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We have two natures. Do you, do you know that? We have our remaining sinful nature. We have our renewed nature being formed again in the image of Christ. We have new natures and we will have an even better renewed nature when we get into, he- into heaven and we're glorified never to sin again. Well, get, we have new desires. If you believe, God takes away the old, wicked, perverse desires and gives us new desires. I, I know before I was converted, Praising God was the furthest thing from my mind. Worrying about what he thought about my life or my actions, I couldn't have cared less. When God changes a man or a woman, he changes everything. New desires, a new body one day, even some of our bodies are getting older, some of them are broken, but one day in the final resurrection, we'll have new bodies and we have a new destiny. Our destiny, if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be with him where he is, right? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and bring you to myself. The Jews who are unbelieving cannot go with him. Those who are believing will go with him. He will come and bring us to himself. We have a glorious promise if we believe on the Lord Jesus. Let me summarize. Jesus condemns half-hearted or lukewarm seeking of him. He condemns being in your sins, he condemns dying in your sins. Jesus points out the devastating consequences of unbelief, but he holds out an offer of grace. Believe on me and live. John 8, 21-24. Again, then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. May that never be so of anyone. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But if you turn to the Lord Jesus and believe upon him, You'll be born again. You'll no longer be born only of this earth, but you'll be born of heaven. You'll be a citizen of heaven, and you'll have a glorious future ahead of you. Let me try to apply these things we've heard briefly. Have you come to a place in your heart where you know that you are in your sins? By that I mean, are you aware and convinced that if nothing changes for you, then you will reap the whirlwind just as Jesus promised. For some, we don't, we'll, they will not need to do anything to go to hell. Just stay the course. Just like dead wood floating down the river. Just go along. At the end is destruction. 
Nothing could be more important than coming to the correct judgment on this vital question. Who is Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought that through? Have you ever wrestled with it? You know, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And he got all kinds of answers. And that was all good, but he wasn't looking for a civics lesson. Then he asked him, who do you say that I am? Right? That's the question. Who do you say that the Lord Jesus Christ is? Who is he to you? Remember, Jesus made it personal. So making it personal is not a bad thing. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Are you seeking Jesus in a half-hearted way that soothes your conscience but does nothing to resolve your alienation from God? Do you know it's possible to come to church Sunday after Sunday and do the religious thing and to sing the hymns and to make yourself feel good? Like, I've got a guilty conscience, but if I go to church, I know I'm doing what's right, and then, you know, it'll work out. If that's the way you're seeking Jesus, you're never going to find him. That's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of God's word is if we seek him diligently with all our hearts, we will find him. If you want Jesus, you need to go with reckless abandon to find Jesus in the scriptures. Now, here's a thought. Jesus did not seek you or me half-heartedly or coldly. Think about the Savior. He was in heaven. He set aside his glory for a season. He did that to take our place so he could fulfill all the righteous demands of the law. And he came down amidst this crooked and perverse generation. He walked among sinners. He fulfilled God's law so that we could be credited with his righteousness. He was misunderstood. He was mistreated. He was betrayed. He was crucified, right? And God poured out his wrath upon him. God the Father turned his face away from him. Does that sound like half-hearted seeking to you? To me, that's his love. When Christ came for me, he did all these things, and he poured himself into seeking me and saving me and saving everyone who believes upon him. Jesus did not do the lukewarm thing. He didn't send a messenger from far away. He came and entered into the fray, as it were, and came out victorious and is in heaven now pleading for those who believe in him. He did all of this, and still, despite 2,000 years of men thumbing their nose at Jesus, pretending he doesn't exist, living the way they want to live, serving the devil and their lusts rather than him, still, he's still standing with his arms outstretched. He's still saying, Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. What a Savior. Each one that has not yet believed in the Lord Jesus has a simple choice to make. Will you continue in the wickedness of your unbelief and reap God's eternal punishment? Or will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and come to him on his terms that you may receive the gift of eternal life? Now, I know we don't do altar calls, and that's good. But Jesus is still calling. Jesus is still bidding. We must bid that you come to, come to the Lord Jesus. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we beseech men, be reconciled unto God through Christ. Why do you need to go to hell? Why? 
There's absolutely no reason why you need to go to hell. Choose life rather than death. And you will never stop rejoicing or praising our glorious God. Let's pray.